Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We're going to rip up the script here right now. We've got a wonderful expert, a true expert uh, with uh, UBS on emerging markets. But I'm going to go right to China and the domestic China, Jeff Dennis, that you know and their predilection towards reminiscence of a stock operator. They seem to like their investment fads uh, within uh, China. And China has a very large Bitcoin interest, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, it does have a, a pretty large Bitcoin interest. Um, I think the the fad with investment in China is, though, fading gradually over time. Uh, your listeners will know that um, pretty much half the economy at one stage um, was investment. That is starting to come lower. The economy in China is beginning to rebalance, therefore, away from investment back towards consumer. I know, back towards towards consumer spending, towards services and less manufacturing. And I think that's a long-term trend. So although they've had this love affair with investment, and I'm sure Bitcoin is part of that, um, the long-term fate, so to speak, outlook for the Chinese economy is going to be much more driven by yeah. the resilience and the growth of consumer spending as as Chinese people, as indeed in a lot of countries, get wealthier. Uh, Jeff, I'm going to take a, a leaf from uh, my colleague's book. Uh, Tom is always interested in where the money flows, right? Mm -hmm. Where does it mm -hmm. go? Because there's smart money out there, and it seems as though there's a lot of money that's going into Asia, but it's not going into Japan, mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. not going into exchange-traded funds. Mm -hmm. Is that mm -hmm. accurate, and what does that tell you? Um, I'm not sure that's entirely accurate. First of all, of course, the Japanese market has been very strong recently, and it's a market that we've we favored. Our strategists have favored that at the global level. Um, and although we've seen tremendous inflow into emerging market funds this year, over $55 billion, which is pretty much the best year we've ever had except 2010, um, about 75% of that has still gone through the ETF um, channel, so to speak. So 25%, let's call that $12, $13 billion has gone, to, uh, gone into active EM funds, which is certainly a big improvement in recent years. And it's very interesting because this year has been so disparate in terms of performance. If you've been long technology and long growth, you've done very well. And if you've gone more the, the, the value way towards the commodity sectors, energy and, and um, materials and also financials, you've done much less well. So this has been a good year for active managers. But um, money has gone to Asia, has gone to Japan, but above all in my world this year, money has gone to Asian technology, which has, of course, blown the doors off in terms of price performance. Does that mean that you believe it will continue, or is it time to rotate? Uh, financial stocks, for example, deregulation in the United States. We've got yeah. an interview with Lloyd Blankfein of Goldman Sachs coming up. We we think the story is much more plain villa in terms of financials. We've uh, uh, About f over 50% of the market in EM, the index, is financials and technology. So you've got to make a relative bet about them. We are arguing uh, to our 
our investors now that you should be a little bit more careful about being long technology. It's not massively expensive. It's just very, very <laughs> over-owned. And we want people to rotate a bit more into financials where you begin to see asset quality improvements, begin to see loan growth cycles beginning to pick up. And indeed, if you are going to see a modest rise in bond yields around the world in 2018, which is our call, you may even have a bit of an, an interest margin story yeah. in financials as well. I mean, I mean, I'm looking, folks. There's a way you do this on the Bloomberg. You go to WEI Go, and it's got so much wonderful information. And then you can currency adjust. Yep. Let's adjust this. I don't even know what this exchange is. The Ho Chi Minh stock market. I'm guessing Vietnam. Very come good. Come on, Ken Burns. And you're still using Hope WEI. You're... You don't do the launch. No, I'm launch I pad. You know, oh, you know more than I do. All right. But I'm I'm looking at the Ho Chi Minh stock market mm -hmm. up 42 percent mm -hmm. dollar based. Mm -hmm. Every single person, Jeff Dennis, in the Jeff Dennis world knows these puppies revert to the mean. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is there a trend there that's discernible? Um, I, I mean, first of all, 42% upside in Vietnam, which is a frontier market, according to the index provider, is actually not wildly out of line. It's not wildly strong. China's above 50%. The Hong Kong uh, China Enterprise Index, which is the way we look at China in terms of foreign investment, Korea's been very strong. You've seen some tremendous gains this year. The really important thing that's happened in emerging markets this year, you've seen a sharp drop in the dollar. You've seen a nice rebound in commodity prices. You've seen a boom in the technology sector. And you've seen, uh, as a consequence of all of that, or, or consequence of some of that, you've had a really big explosion of earnings growth in EM, which looks like it's going to be well north of 20% growth this year, best year since 2010. So although EM has done very well this year, it has not actually got that much more expensive because the earnings story has been very good. So the issue is, if EM has got a little richer and the valuations are somewhat high, does the cost of capital stay low? Do bond yields here stay low to justify those moves? So we're not worried that some of these markets are up 40 50%. It's really been broadly justified by a very strong recovery in earnings growth. Well, let's pick up on something that Tom focused on having to do with dollar-denominated returns. You mm -hmm. think the dollar is going to remain weak or get weaker? Our view is the dollar will go down again in 2018, not as much as it's gone down this year. We've got the dollar-euro ending 2018 at 125. It's about 118 today, so nothing, not as big a move as, as, um, as uh, this year. What is interesting is although the dollar's been weak this year, emerging market currencies have not gone up that much against the dollar. They've gone up about 4%, whereas the dollar's gone down a long way against the euro. But the bottom line is even if you don't get much translation effect for EM returns because the dollar is is that weak against some of these EM currencies, what you get is when the dollar goes down, liquidity comes out of the U.S. and chases yield and chases risk overseas. So you get a very beneficial liquidity effect. And if the dollar goes down again next year, which is the UBS call, that liquidity is going to continue at the margin to come towards EM. Yeah. And it's going to give us okay. a decent year again next year. Jeff Dennis with the UBS Now on oil, and let me just get this out of the way. We're not going to send out to you the short report in its gorgeous minutia on valves and pistons and pumps because we protect the copyright of our guests. Contact Mr. Short when he's not watching the 10-1 Philadelphia Eagles. Stephen, good morning. 
Good morning. Great to be here. What is a distinctive feature here at the top of the home on the range? We're right up against the range on WTI in Brent. What's the thing you're watching as we hit this range peak? Uh, right now, it's that big, magical $60 number. There's nothing special about it, Tom. It's just the fact that it's a psychological number, the next handle in the iteration. Uh, but to that point, uh, we're getting up and we're pushing up $57, $58. Uh, momentum is starting to stall. In fact, some of the technical indicators, momentum oscillators, so forth, indicate that the market uh, has peaked uh, at least for a short term. Uh, that is to say, we did get uh, the announcement, uh, not unexpected, that we're going to get the extension uh, with OPEC and the quotas. Uh, but right now, there really isn't any kind of follow-through yeah. uh, on the NYMEX pricing does, right does now. Vienna, this question came up like four times today. Does Vienna matter to American oil analysis? Uh, no, it's actually it's an excellent point. Uh, we essentially, for the past 10 years, have had a bifurcated market. Uh, in that uh, the U.S. now becoming a powerhouse with regard to its own energy production and becoming a significant exporter uh, on the refined products and a burgeoning exporter in the crude oil market. Uh, Essentially, we're having two different market areas here. So you have the United States, North America, essentially Canada and the United States, unfortunately, Mexico, given their infrastructure issues, is not part of that. But uh, And then you have, of course, the global market and the growth with Asian refiners. Uh, Pim Fox, we hereby pause a listener in London. Brandon emails in, wait, the Eagles are 10 and 1, question mark? Best in league, question mark? Thank you for listening on Radio London this morning. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. We here in Philadelphia are as shocked as anyone that people uh, <laughs> about anyone. That sounds like you're from Philadelphia. Hey, hey Stephen, <laughs> I, want, I want to put you back on track here having to do with oil and, and perhaps something that I know I missed over the weekend. On Sunday, there was a big conclave in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman brought together 40 uh, other uh, Islam uh, Islamic countries, and they are in a agreement of a counterterrorism alliance. I'm wondering if you could just speak about that and the calls by the Crown Prince to introduce what he describes as a more moderate form of uh, Islam into Saudi Arabia, and whether that will in some way change the dynamic of you know Iran, Saudi Arabia, because we'll get the geopolitics in a second. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Pam. And we essentially saw back in 2014 when the bear market in oil began, it was prompted by Saudi Arabia's refusal to take oil off of the market. Uh, And that happened uh, three Thanksgivings ago when ministers met in Vienna. Um, What was left unsaid is the previous Monday uh, uh, back in Vienna, uh, the West sat down with Iran with regard to the nuclear ambitions of Tehran, and Tehran got up and walked away from the table. Uh, That simply, in my estimation, uh, prompted Saudi Arabia to go into an economic warfare with with Iran, and hence we had oil plunge from $75 down to about $25 a barrel. Uh, However, shortly thereafter, the United States acquiesced and uh, struck a deal with Iran. So that kind of put uh, Saudi Arabia's plans on hold. But certainly with the growing tension uh, with uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, essentially pushing potentially Qatar into Iran's arms. Right, because Iran uh, and Qatar were not invited to this summit. 
Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so it, it, it's the age-old Sunni-Shia rift within OPEC, uh, and that is certainly the black swan event out there for the new year. All right, so if that's the black swan, how would you trade that? You're at crude at 57 and change right now? Uh, absolutely. I, I'm, uh, yeah, I think that we are on the top of the range uh, at this point. Uh, this is a level, uh, the high 50s for North American producers, mid-60s uh, for the global producers, uh, opportunities to hedge. And what, what you always want to look at, guys, is who's been doing the buying, who's been doing the selling. And right now, the buyer has been the speculator, uh, Wall Street, uh, very short-term <laughs> view. Uh, more importantly, it's who's been doing the seller. Yeah. And keep in mind that a crude oil producer has to sell. He's the only one who has to sell his barrel. And we look at the hedging activity. Uh, we're looking at hedging at an all-time high. Okay, so, so you, I say you, at these levels, yes. Well, that's a one-way yes, bet. You're, you're predicting lower, right? Uh, yeah, I think we are. At the, I think we are, are really pushing up against the top of the market, and I would expect to see moderation uh, into the new year. Okay, but why don't we go to Stephen Shork, $39 a barrel or whatever you were predicting a year ago? I mean, is, is it just because demand has kicked in to put a floor under the range? Yeah, we, we've essentially, you know, we, we've yo-yoed uh, in between that, that low $40 yeah. range, mid $50 range o over the past year. Uh, certainly, we've had a significant rally uh, in the market over, well, since post-Harvey, actually. Uh, and then you had to disconnect um, to be expected between the Brent market and the oil market, given the impact that it had on uh, the storms had on logistics in North America. So at this point, yes, there, there is demand, but let's keep in mind also that speculators have, have certainly come into the market uh, recently per the latest update from the CFTC. Uh, Wall Street is now sitting on a 36-week high in uh, their long position, uh, and they've <clears throat> cut their short position to a 30-week low. So certainly when you're yeah. cutting your short position, you're, you're buying back the market. And that certainly yeah. has been an impetus to some of the strength in the market. Stephen Shirk, thank you so much. The Shirk Report, greatly appreciated. Ashwin Allen Carr joins us. He is, of course, uh, the head Janice of Janice Henderson. Right. Janice Henderson, Global Asset Allocation and Risk Management. And, uh, you know, uh, Ashwin, Tom, during the break, we were talking about how fear and emotion can change the way you trade risk. And you mentioned mm -hmm. something earlier that I just want you to uh, maybe expand on, having to do with people that are not experts or veterans of trading risk now participating in this market could they be the weak link when yes. things go bad i think you're exactly right i think they because they're not experienced if fear is going to set in it's going to set in first with those who are uncomfortable or um, exploring an unknown territory and there are many, many investors from very risk-averse institutional investors to even retail investors who have jumped on this bandwagon of selling volatility, whether it be interest rate volatility, whether it be currency volatility, whether it be equity volatility. The first sign of stress 
who are the first people to jump off the train? It's those who are not or who are inexperienced, who haven't gone through these ebbs and flows before. So that is the weak link. Um, that link drops, the whole chain is going to get impacted. Um, this is not only going to impact volatility levels, this will yeah. also impact the flattening we see in the term structure of interest rates. Um, so those holders and everyone is moving into right. the long end of the curve. Um, risk comes back. Term premium, by definition, must come back. Term structure steepens. One of the biggest crowds today is long the long end of the curve um, and underweight the short end of the curve. Right. What For, happens when that yeah. reverses? Uh, we'll have to see. I want to rip up the script here, Ash, and I don't want to get you in trouble with Mr. Gross or with the general counsel of Janice Henderson, but I've got to ask with your mathematics about the auction process, the bid-ask process of Bitcoin. We've all seen this before. Market pros are like, how many times have we been down this road? And mm -hmm. so much of this is not only the mystery of who's on the bid and who's on the asked, but the yep. small set of people or institutions. Do I have that right? You exactly have that right. That Bitcoin, a lot of people, in my opinion, are misinterpreting the Bitcoin as the blockchain. The blockchain has tremendous value to it because it's a ledger. Um, it, it's a real-time, uh, authentic, um, apparently bulletproof ledger. Distributed ledger. It's a distributed ledger. Um, the Bitcoin, however, is just one key to that ledger. There are many cryptocurrencies. There's many keys to the, that, that vault that the blockchain provides. Um, so Bitcoin by itself, it's not clear what value it has. It's very clear the blockchain has tremendous value. The blockchain is a game changer, but Bitcoin is just one key to that chain. Um, so people should be wary of Bitcoin. I don't yeah. believe Bitcoin presents systemic risk for exactly the reasons you said, Tom. Yeah. Right? There's a small group of people who are participating. Um, so it's not a systemic event, but CME is going to launch futures on Bitcoin. Um, as more and more people have access to cryptocurrencies, and these people, once again, are inexperienced. They're not technologists. They don't really understand truly the intricacies of what a cryptocurrency are, just like the inexperienced people who are selling volatility today. Yeah. It creates a well, dangerous recipe. This has been hugely valuable. Ashley Ankur with us with Janice Henderson. Uh, thank you so much. The single best essay of the day on Marvin Goodfriend has been Mr. Emmons of Intellectus, of course, for years at PIMCO as well. Uh, ben, I'm going to go right to the punchline, which is with Mr. Goodfriend coming on, it makes the Stanley Fisher slot, the vice chair slot, that much more important. How does it change the who of the vice chair? Hi, good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, well, it changes because Goodfriend, you know, as he's been described, mantras, economists, you know, that vice chair is really the person that brings it all in balance, right, against the others. And, um, you know, so, the, so that is an important critical appointment. 
so if that would be someone with also a more monetarist view of Fed policy, then we really are shifting uh, next well, year. President. This is uh, almost like the Supreme Court in that I guess if you get five to four monetarists versus Keynesians, that's a big deal. How close equivalent is the FOMC process to a 5-4 Supreme Court either way? Yeah, I think it's changing, Tom. My, my sense from this is, is that, the, you know, with uh, Powell coming on as the chair, that we are seeing somewhat of a shift of the agenda, at least. You know, there's, there's a focus on growth. I thought the testimony by Powell was, was emphasizing that. This is my interpretation. So I think we are, you know, as you described the Supreme Court's way, like, yeah, you get this balance of, of, of different people on the board you know, just expressing a view about the economy in a, in a different way than before, so, i.e. the Keynesian view that I think is the Fed has followed a lot over the last number of years, maybe shifting. It may not be pure monetarist, but it's, uh, it has a certain tone in there. But Ben, I just want to follow up on what you said having to do with, with growth, as if the current makeup of the Federal Reserve is not focused uh, on growth. They seem to be doing everything they can in order to maintain growth, whether it's, you know, maintaining that nice big balance sheet, although the runoff is beginning, uh, or accommodative interest rates. Yeah, that's true, Pim. I mean, it's, 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 not, it's not like they obviously are adverse to growth, but I think the point about that is more this, is that, uh, you know, we're full employment or near, and, and that's sort of the conclusion. We know inflation remains on the target, but, you know, what's missing is, has been growth, really. Right? I mean, we have been, uh, you know, 2%-ish sort of growth, so... The, the way the Fed can stimulate that is really about this coordination with the government, right, of what the type of reforms need to take place, whether it's through regulation or labor market reforms, in order to get the growth really back on track. I think that's the key critical element, which came up, was a lot of, of that discussed during the Powell testimony. I think that's, that's the change here. I mean, obviously, low interest rates have stimulated the economy to an extent, but not to the degree that you would have expected that would have happened normally, right? That growth would have rebounded above trend. That only has happened temporarily, 2010 and 2013-14. So really looking at something, I think, that the Fed is focused on working with the government on the right amount of reforms in labor market and, and bank regulation. You're bringing a smile to, to Tom's, to Tom's <laughs> face here. I'm glad to hear that because, uh, you know, it, it, it would be great if it actually works, right? And that's, of course, the... Yeah, that actually, you know, if, uh, th those those are difficult words when you're talking right. about the, the future of the economy. I, I just want to pose to you one, one question here having to do with this uh, appointment and, and growth. Uh, is blowing a hole in the federal deficit, is, is that a way to do this? Yeah, and so there's a point about that that needs that, that deficits and recession are closely closely linked, right? I mean, that's been the past yeah. like that before, right? That's an, that's critical, of course. Like, how can the deficit that you increase really generate this growth that you avoid the recession, right? That that's where we're going to be challenged uh, with, you know, the the euchre flattening that we've had this year could be interpreted such that that you know it, it is not a risk premium price in the euchre for the deficit, rather. The market interprets the increase of the deficit as a as an probability of a recession increasing over the number of next number of years. Yeah. That's an opposing view to the right. appointees that we're getting now on the board, right? That's with this more GDP focus. I want to get the phrases right here as we go to the nomination process and what I would suggest will be important scrutiny of Professor Goodfriend. You keep using the word monetarist. Marvin Goodfriend is out of Union College Schenectady. Good morning, Mohawk Valley, and Brown University which is the land of Bill Poole. I mean, huge influence decades ago, the former president of the St. Louis Fed. 
Is Marvin Goodfriend a monetarist like M1, M2, M3, and Mr. Poole? Or is he a different kind of monetarist in a modern age? So I think the monetarist idea of that is that, and referring to his paper at the Kansas Fed, um, where he was focused on uh, you know, taking away the lower zero bounds because that's a constraint on monetary policy, um, you know, that speaks to the view about price stability more as opposed to the target, right? And I think that idea is about that, like the ECB that has, I think, from that perspective, more monetarist view that monetary transmission works better on our price stability than, than this target, right? Because it sets too much of a numerical level on inflation as opposed to having, you know, around about inflation at two or two plus percent. So I think that's really the idea, uh, other than the, the, the Friedman view of about monetary policy as in yeah. m, m times velocity equals uh, you know, output times prices. Right? That's and, not what we're talking about here, right? Right. No, I don't think so. I think it's okay, more I think it's about, important. Yeah, I, I agree, Tom. I think it's more about, I think Goodfriend is more about, I want to take away the constraint on monetary policy on well, the lower zero bounds. Right? That's, that's important. Okay, okay but Ben, but one of, just because of time, we're going to have to run here in one minute. The right. The... The great book by Lawrence Meyer of Washington University of St. Louis, uh, a term at the Fed, he got nowhere with Alan Greenspan. Why do we think any governor, including Professor Goodfriend, is going to get anywhere with Chairman Powell? Yeah, and that's a fair point. He will be one voice, Goodfriend, one voice on the board. So that is the position. So again, back to the earlier question, Who's going to be the appointee of the vice chair is critical in that respect. Um, now he he will have influence, of course. Just yeah. I, I point out in the note, Charles Blosser and 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 uh, Dallas Fed Fisher back in 2013 made a really strong case to end QE, and ultimately Bernanke did follow somewhat through on that on their arguments, right? And so Goodfriend will make that voice too of you know how to conduct policy. But the vice chair makes a big difference there. Yeah. So um, I would agree that he, he won't fully influence the, uh, the the policy by himself, obviously. Uh, it really heightens the vice chair choice uh, this morning. And I should uh, mention Ben Emmons, thank you so much on short notice. Terrific essay for his intellectus partners, clients. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.